Okay, take that Bible this morning. Look over to the book of James. We shall turn to the Word of God. The book of James. Our theme here is advance. Advancing in the cause of Christ and our walk with Christ and our love for Christ. Rick opened up our time uh, last night with a focus on Christ. And I want to take you to a passage both now and at 4.30 in the book of James. And for the sake of just a a direction that I want to go with it, I want to just call it overcoming sin and temptation. Overcoming sin and temptation. Let me read the text for you and then we'll launch into it. It says there in James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And now this, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. We'll pay particular attention to 17 and 18 this afternoon, and then this morning I want to look as best we can at verses 13 through 16, because I thought as we looked at that theme, this popped into our mind. Of course, there's much we can say proactively on advancing in our walk with Christ, and our love for Christ, and our pursuit of Christ, you know, striving forward to what lies ahead, forgetting what is behind and so forth. But really where my heart lied with you as a group of students and young adults is how do you overcome sin and temptation? I couldn't help but think as I watched that video last night of that guy running up the mountain, climbing up the mountain and working through the obstacles, whether they were rocks or the, the altitude or just the slight, you know, the, the, the hillside that he was running up. What would it be like if you were doing that all at the same time dodging bullets from somebody shooting at you below? See, because if we're going to advance, we're going to have to be able to overcome some things. We're going to have to overcome sin and temptation. And more than just overcome it, you're going to have to understand how sin and how temptation works. And what I want to do with our time this morning is I want to describe for you how temptation operates. How does it work? And maybe the thought would be, I'm not going to bring out all these practical things of how to overcome it. I'll let you discuss that a little bit later this afternoon or your times at your meals together or in a small group. I think I'm more interested in this text at this place in the New Testament to tell you how it works. In other words, if you understand how temptation will work, it will help you overcome it and thus advance in the cause of Christ. And so what James does here in 1, 13 through 18 is he gives two vital truths that reveal the source of temptation, okay? And then what he does is he corrects any erroneous 
thoughts about God. So this morning, I want to deal first with the source of temptation, and then this afternoon, the substance of God's character. So that's where we're going if you're taking notes. The source of temptation, and then this afternoon, the substance of God's character. Now, as we look at the source of temptation, I'm dropping you into a passage, and I'm dropping you into a chapter that we don't have the time for. But in the first part of that opening chapter, he dealt with the subject of trials, in the second portion, in 1, 13 through 18, James is dealing with the theme of temptation. Now, I don't want to get you lost in here. Rick and I were talking about this uh, yesterday, that the word for trial that you see in verse 2, the word for trial that you see in verse 12, is the Greek word parasmos. The word that we understand when you read here, let no one say when he is being tempted, the word tempted is the same root of the word trial. So really you're dealing with uh, a theological issue there, a trial and a temptation, and how do you know what's the source of those? So what James is going to deal with this here is the source of temptation. And what he's going to do under this first point is state a rejection, okay? Then he's going to provide a reason for the rejection. And then he's going to clarify the reality of temptation. I want to genuinely help you today to overcome temptation. And not so much that I'm building a paradigm practically. I want you to understand how it works. And and I'd say it this way, this directly, this strongly to you. It will work this way every single time. When you're dealing with temptation, when you're dealing with the theme of lust, James is going to show you how that operates. And if you begin to look at the greater portion of the Bible, you'll see this pattern develop in every form of sin. So to be forewarned, if you will, is, you know, is to be forearmed how to overcome it. But let's just dive into it. Let me build a little bit of a platform before we get to the specific. But first, under the source of temptation, the rejection stated, look at verse 13a. James says there, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. And so James just says, let no man ever say. Let no man ever make such a claim is the thought that James gives here. In other words, you you would almost say how preposterous. You can't kind of read the emphasis here, but James is really going after it. Look again at the text. It, It actually says this in 13, let no one say when he is tempted and it's put in the middle voice and it's as though James is saying, let no one say to himself. Let no one have this thought. You say, well, what were they saying? Look at verse 13 again. They were saying this, that I am being tempted by God. And I think James is on to something here, that possibly some to whom he wrote were in the midst of their trials. And in the midst of these trials, they were beginning to blame God for their failure. And what James does here is he says, terminate all slanderous thoughts about God. 
In fact, I would say verse 13 is a rebuke. Let no one say. In other words, let no man say this. It's a firm rebuke. I want you to get the tone of it. In other words, for James in his mind in the scripture, do not even suggest such a blasphemy. Okay? In fact, according to 1 Corinthians 13, in every temptation, God provides you a way of what? Escape. So here he's dealing with the source. He's dealing with this rejection. He says, let no man make such a claim. And again, I'm trying to crawl into the writer's heart here. It's possible that if they had a trial and they succeeded in that trial, if you go back to James chapter 1 in verse 12, there it says, blessed is the man who perseveres under the trial because once he's been approved he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him blessed is that man blessed is that man who lives and pursues and the the word perseveres there is hupomene who kind of lives under the weight of that trial because he's going to be blessed but the thought would come what happens if you don't uh, persevere under that trial and these people were beginning to blame God. Now, I would just share with you as a pastor in pastoral ministry for 25 years in counseling, I know a ton of people who blame their sin on God, who blame their trial on God, who blame the circumstance in their life on God, who blame the, the, the status of where they are on God. And I could go on for a long time. I'll tell you one story, though. Dear friend of mine, High school quarterback, incredible arm. They always tried to get me to go out for football. I did the other sports. I played basketball, I played baseball, and I ran track. I didn't want to go out for football because they were bad. They were like two and eight. And I thought, I'm not going to go out and get crushed for that. But this guy, if you just were out in the practice field, you just watch this guy. It was like he was like John Elway. I grew up not far from John Elway, the Hall of Fame quarterback who played at Granada Hills High School. This, this guy would just throw the ball, my friend, and it come off his hand, perfect spiral. College scouts were coming to look at this guy in 10th grade. I mean, he had a rocket arm. He, was, he threw the ball so hard that most of his receivers couldn't catch it. I mean, this guy was destined for something. At least he was div- destined for Division I football. I mean, the guy was a golden arm. And one day in 10th grade, as he went back to throw the ball, he raised up like this, and the linebacker came blindside out of nowhere, caught him up underneath his shoulder, and basically brought him down to the ground, crushed him, separated the guy's throwing shoulder. He's done for the year, but he's going to come back. So they get him into surgery, and instead of doing a right surgery for him, this doctor gets into there, and he, he, doesn't, he doesn't do the surgery right. So that when he comes out of surgery, his arm is popping in and out, his shoulder, his arm. He can't throw the ball. So then he goes into a second surgery, but that doctor butchers him and he winds him up too tight so that when he gets out of that surgery, the guy's got no motion to throw. So he has to go back into a third surgery, still hoping to get back on the football field, a Christian brother all at the same time. But one story, make a long story short, this guy doesn't have two surgeries or three surgeries. This guy has seven surgeries, okay? Seven in fact, they finally had to get him over to the doctor that does the Los Angeles Dodgers, Curlin Job, to fix this guy. And when they got him in there again for the seventh surgery, they said, who butchered you? 
when they got in there. So this guy's partly devastated, but he's partly loves God at the same time. So he goes into youth ministry, but he's got a problem now. He's got a problem with pain now. So he gets addicted to Vicodin, okay? Because he can't handle the pain. And even his life, he, he's serving, but there's something wrong. And it finally caught up to him, just long story short, is he got on such painkillers that the doctor said, listen, we've been doing this long enough, you're done. But then he resorted to this. He'd go into the doctor's office. He'd steal the prescription pad. And then he became his own doctor, scribbling out his own stuff to, to relieve the pain. And it finally caught up to him till the police caught up, arrested him at his local church, put him in jail, lost his marriage, the whole thing. But what's amazing in all of that, who do you think he was upset with? He's not upset with himself. He's mad at who? God. You say he is? I mean, many people like this. God, why'd you let that happen? God, why'd you let me raise my shoulder? God, if you're so sovereign, couldn't you keep that linebacker from blindsiding me? And God, if you were so sovereign, why didn't you lead me back to the right doctor who would get me back on the field? Listen, I'm telling you, what becomes a trial can very quickly turn into a temptation. And if that trial, which was meant to bless you and profit you and grow you in early part of James in your faith so that you'd have endurance and God would be blessed and you would be blessed, that's great. But listen, if your trial turns into a temptation and your temptation leads you into sin, James just wants to be very clear here. Do not ever blame God. And I wonder in a room this size, how many of you have gotten sideways because of a trial, because of an issue, because of a family member, because of a dad, because of a mom, because of a boss, because of a boyfriend. And all James is saying is, listen, he wants to deal with the source of temptation. And what he wants to do is get God, if you will, off the hook. He says, let no man say. Thinking of the Scottish poet, Robert Burns, who put it like this, he said, thou knowest that thou hast formed me with passions wild and strong and listening to their witching voice has often led me wrong. I mean, Burns in essence blames God for his sensual desire and some men merely think God made me this way. Now, most believers don't ever see, go so far to see as God as the direct tempter, but they do believe in many cases that God is indirectly to blame by allowing them to be in certain situations. I mean, ultimately what the person is saying is, God, you are responsible. And I think they were reasoning this way, that since God sends the trials, he also sends the temptation. And if he sends or allows the temptation, and you fail in it, then we begin to blame God for our sin. You would agree, this is just human nature, isn't it? We're always blaming someone. You remember in the Garden of Eden, Adam said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and ate, right? So when God comes to Adam, did he not? The woman that you gave to me, she gave, he blamed it on Eve, didn't he? Who did Eve blame it on? Eve said, the serpent, what? deceived me, right? 
Adam said, don't blame me, blame Eve. Eve said, don't blame me, blame the serpent. And we're always blaming someone. It's called blame shifting. And if we, like Adam's children, like to blame shift our sin on someone else, sometimes we even blame it on God. This is just, I have a friend, Kent Hughes, in Wheaton. Uh, He's actually in Spokane now, but he told me of a young woman who had come to Christ in a marvelous way. She had come to Christ. She was a new person in Christ, and she radically changed. But sadly, her troubled husband didn't follow suit as she had so dearly hoped for in her newfound faith. And after a year of continuing marital disappointment, she sought help from a counselor. And instead of receiving help, she became the victim of professional seduction. It began with extravagant sympathy, compliments about her attractiveness, then subtly suggestive comments. And she, as a woman, was seduced and there followed a history there and damage to her spiritual condition. And Kent said by the time that she caught up with him and his wife, she was a ruined person. She was seething with bitterness and rage. And certainly, to be sure, she was a victim of an unprincipled male in professional sheep's clothing. But amazingly, it was neither to him nor herself that she placed the ultimate blame. Rather, she said to Kent Hughes through clenched teeth, I asked God to lead me to the right person, and he led me to this man. It is God's fault. He is to blame for what happened. Amazing. People do this all the time. They blame God. They blame God. Or they blame their circumstance, don't they? Do you, meet, you know people who blame their circumstance? I mean, we are, we are a nation of victims, are we not? I mean, we have people who blame stuff on everybody else. For example, you heard of the man who was shot and paralyzed while committing a burglary in New York. Okay, he comes in. Imagine this. As he comes in to rob the store, he himself is shot while he's committing this burglary, and he received, he recovered damages from the store owner who shot him. His attorney told the jury the man was first of all the victim of society driven to a crime by economic disadvantages. Now the lawyer said he is the victim of the insensitivity of the man who shot him, and because of the callous disregard to the thief's plight as a victim, the poor criminal will be confined to a wheelchair for the rest of his life. The jury agreed, and the store owner paid him a large settlement. And this is just what happens all the time in our nation. We're always blaming something, the circumstance, the situation, okay? The, the, maybe the most famous one is the one in San Francisco where a San Francisco man, and this is not a joke, murdered a supervisor, okay? And he murdered the mayor. The mayor's name was George Moscone because of consuming, here's what the, the killer said, that he consumed too much junk food, okay? Especially, no joke, Hostess Twinkies, okay? The, the man who killed the mayor and this other man claimed that it made him act irrationally. And thus, quote, the fa- famous Twinkie defense was born and a lenient jury bought the line and produced the verdict of voluntarily, voluntary manslaughter rather than murder. They ruled that the junk food resulted in, quote, diminished mental capacity, which mitigated the killer's guilt. I mean, this stuff happens all over the place. And all the time, people are blaming their sin on other people. And what James says is, listen, he refutes the claim that God tempts any man to evil. Listen, I want to just encourage you. God is sovereign, but make no mistake about it. God never, ever, 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 ever ordains your sin. Ever. 
okay? So this is the rejection. Let no one say when he is being tempted, I am being tempted by God. You say, well, why? Why why could he make that rejection? Look back in the text. Here's the reason given. Look at verse 13. It says there, for God cannot be tempted by evil. That's why. In other words, here's why. God can't tempt you to evil. Look at it again. For God cannot be tempted by evil. In other words, he is unable to be tempted. In other words, in the character of God, he has no capacity for it. He is not even vulnerable to it. If I put it in a phrase, I'd say he's untemptable. In his holiness, in his holy nature, it makes such a claim impossible. In other words, evil can't penetrate the holy nature of God. Evil in the face of God repulses him. Certainly you remember when Isaiah was in the temple and it began to shake and he heard the seraphim cry out, holy, holy, what? Holy is the Lord of hosts. And I think most people believe it's a reference to the Trinity. I don't. I think it's just a Hebrew uh, statement of scripture with emphasis that he's holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. He can't tempt people to evil. Evil can't penetrate his nature. It makes it impossible for God to be tempted. And as a result of that, look again at verse 13. It says, God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. He's incapable of tempting someone to sin because he himself has no capacity for sin. And so then the question would come, if God is not responsible for our temptation, then who is the source of our temptation? Look again at the text in verse 14. In the New American Standard, it begins with that word, but. But each one is tempted. And he creates the contrast there in verse 14 with that little transition. It marks the contrast, but. You'll notice this in verse 14. It says that each one is tempted. And James is stressing the universal experience of temptation. In other words, each one of us, no one is exempt from this. And then look again at verse 14. Each one, it says there, is tempted. And that's with an evil intent, okay, in the context. And he's tempted, look again in verse 14, where it says he's carried away and enticed by his own, what? Lust. And I just note there, if you want to underline it, you don't have to. He's enticed by his own lust, okay? It's individual lust of each person may be different. Listen, one person's passion may be another person's repulsion, but each one is tempted and carried away by his own lust. So if that's the rejection stated, the reason given God can't be tempted, what's the reality clarified, okay? The reality clarified. The source of our temptation is not God, but verse 14 says it's our own, what? It's our own lust. There's the source of our temptation. You say, well, Scott, how does lust operate? I mean, if you're gonna advance How does it work? Lust is going to operate this way every time. 
I want to give you a, des- a description of the temptation, temptation process. It comes in a four-fold sequence that I could see in the text. And this is to help you, okay? So rather than giving you all these practical 10 steps, I just want to tell you how it works, okay? And in other words, how does temptation work in your life and in my life? Well, number one, it begins with lust, sinful desire. Lust, sinful desire. And that's there in verse 14. Each one is tempted towards evil, right? when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Let's just talk about that for a second. Lust, it's a, what, what is it? It's a, if I asked you what is lust, what, what would you tell me? If, think about it. It's just simply the Greek word epithumia, okay? Now, in the NASB, I'm reading the word lust, But lust, epithumia, simply, right out of the lexicon, is simply the word desire. And when you find that term in the New Testament, epithumia, lust here, maybe the word desire, it is a strong desire. Now, I would just want to just clarify one thing before you on this. Lust and desire is not always wrong, okay? Now, I'm, I'm just, you say, well, Scott, lust is wrong. Yeah, I understand in the context. But if, if you looked at it in verse 14, lust is simply the word desire. Now, in the context, it's evil here. And the reason I say that desire is not wrong, this is the same Greek word in 1 Timothy 3.1. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it is a good work that he desires to do. So if any man wants to be an elder, if any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it is a fine work that he, he lusts to do. So, well, 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 maybe I wouldn't say, okay, he desires to do. It's a positive term. But anytime you try to look for leaders, you don't look for the guys whom you have to go get a pair of pliers and grab their teeth and pull them with you. If you're looking for leadership, you begin to look for the guys who have a desire for it. Listen, that word desire was used by Jesus in Luke twenty-two fifteen when he said to the disciples before the cross, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I have earnestly epithumied. I I want to. It's a strong desire. I want to take this Passover with you before I suffer. So the man of God pursuing the office, it's a fine work he desires to do. Jesus wanted to desire to eat the Passover. In fact, this is the same word that Paul uses, this one thing I desire. So watch this. And you say, well, why are you explaining this to me? Because if you don't understand how it operates, you won't know how to shut it down. Here in this context, it's not a man pursuing the office. It's not Jesus wanting to take the Passover. In this context, here, it's towards evil, okay? So I would say that some desires are holy and profitable, but here in James, the thought is towards evil. It is a desire for sinful pleasure. You say, well, what is lust? Well, step back for a second. It's a desire. I'm trying to help you. It's a wrong desire. It's a sinful desire. You say, well, where does it come from? Well, listen. 
It comes out of your own heart. It comes out of what we might call our unredeemed flesh. So while we're going to glory being a new creature and being a new creation and all the old things have passed away and the new things have come, all I know is in your heart and in my heart, you could be walking with God, filled with the Spirit. And then at one point, you could have just a radical thought come into your life. A radical, evil, lustful desire. A desire that is not holy. A desire that is sinful. A desire that is wrong. A desire that is opposite of holiness and honor. And it dishonors the object. Let me see if I can show you something. Look over in Romans for a second. Rick, we'll, maybe we'll stay in Romans because you're preaching Romans at your church. But look over at how Paul uses this word. Romans chapter 6, verse 12. Remember there in that great section where we're dead to sin, at least to its power, operating in our life, but alive to God. What Paul says in Romans six eleven. even so... Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its, what? Lust. You do not have to let sin reign in your body that you would obey its desires. You you say, well, Scott, what are they? Listen, what temptation is, and it always will begin here, it begins with the desire that is wrong. You say, where does that thing come from? Well, I'll I'll say that in a moment, but it comes out of your own heart. You say, well, how do I get those? Listen, until you get to heaven, until you get a glorified body, until you get out of this carcass of sin that you're in, you and I are going to battle with temptation. And you say, well, where does it begin? It begins with a craving. It begins with a sinful desire. And what Paul's saying is you don't have to obey its lust. Look over at Romans chapter 1. Maybe appropriate that we at least say it there. Remember there when God gives people over that instead of honoring God in 121, doxa, instead of glorifying him as God and give thanks, they became futile. I'm in 121 in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of a corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Here it is. Therefore, God gave them over in the what? the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. What is that? God is giving people over to the evil passions of their hearts to impurity so they exchange the natural for the unnatural. unnatural. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over, here's our word, to degrading passions the word. For women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural, and in the same way the men abandon their natural function of the woman and burned in their, there it is, desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own person the due penalty of their error. You say, well, what is even the sin of homosexuality? 
simply an evil desire that goes unchecked. And God gives them over to the lust of their hearts. Now, as a believer, here's the, here's the amazing thing. You still have sinful desires. They're still inside you. You say, I'm a Christian. Yeah, you're a Christian and so am I. But I'm telling you, until you get to glory, you've got radical agents in you, in your unredeemed flesh, that if you're not careful, they're going to cause you not to advance. Listen, if you just say, I'm going to let go and let God do it, listen, I'm telling you, it will be impossible for you to advance if you don't take these desires and know what to do with them. In fact, Paul tells us as believers what to do. Look over at Romans 13. Romans 13 in verse You've seen this scripture before. Let us behave properly, Romans 13, 13. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness. It's probably what I'm thinking, you know, no disrespect, you students at Montana State, um, at least where I am, that's how people live, okay? Especially in if they're living there, not in, let us be, but for the believer, let us behave properly in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its, what? Lust. You still have unredeemed flesh and you are to make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. What is lust? A sinful craving desire. Now listen, what James is saying here in the context is that lust, make no mistake about it, is the source of temptation. Listen, it is not God. And let me be clear here at James 1. It is not the devil Okay, what do you mean the devil? Well, I know some people who blame all their sin on the devil. I grew up with a comedian named Flip Wilson and he was famous for the line, the devil made me what? Do it. Listen, the devil doesn't make you do anything. So James is real clear. It's not God. At this point, it's not the devil. James would even say at this point, where does temptation come from? It's not even out of the world though I would say that's a feature of it, this temptation comes out of your own lust. And if I, I don't have time here to unpack this. You know where it really begins? Huh. It begins in your mind. It begins in your imagination. It begins in a thought. It begins in imagination. It begins to become a desire that begins to form in your imagination and you take that sinful desire and listen, I'm telling you, you better shut it down. So let me give you an example. If David is out on the balcony in the Old Testament at the time in spring when kings should have been out where? To war. And he looks off his balcony and he notices Bathsheba. And the Bible's very clear that she was beautiful, okay? You say, did he sin there? Well, I mean, I suppose he could have sinned there. But but I suppose... If he saw her and thought she was beautiful, he could have said, Aid, come here. Who is that woman? Go hide her. Tell her she can't be out on her, you know, in her backyard bathing. He, he, but he didn't. 
You, you, it gets worse, doesn't it? And James will tell us it will get worse. I suppose David could have said, God, I take that thought captive. God, I take that desire captive. But he didn't. But my point is, all sin begins in the imagination. All sin begins in the desire. And if you don't shut it down early, it's going to run on you. But here's how it works. First, lust, sinful desire. That's the inward mechanism. Secondly, lust, shameful deception. You say, well, how does it work? I'll, I'll tell you how it works. Look, in verse, look at the scripture. Go back to James, okay? Here's how it works, and it works this way every time. It begins with a desire that you've got to shut down, and if you don't shut it down, look what it says in James 1, 14. But each one is tempted. Here's the shameful deception, lust, shameful deception. When he's carried away, and enticed by his own lust. James gives two participles here. He says you're carried away, verse 14, and you're enticed. You say, well, how does it work? Well, to be carried away is, it's, you know, James is so rich in his metaphors. It, it means to draw away, okay? It's to draw away from a place of security, okay? So watch this, lust begins with an inward mechanism in a desire, but then it moves to a deception and it begins to carry you away from a place of security to a form of outward deception. Now, may, now maybe you've heard this, but that word there in, in verse 14, carried away, was a, was a, was a fishing term. In fact, that's where the word came out of. It was used in connection of a fisherman. And a fisherman, and I've fished before, uh, they would use lures, would they not? In fact, Rick, where were we yesterday? At River's Edge? River's Edge, that's a cool store. Because you go in there and you're beginning to look at those lures, especially for fly fishing. They've got, you know, the, the feathers and all the stuff around the trappings of the hook. But what is a lure if you go fishing? How many of you have fished before? Yeah, I see a number of you. I've done a little fly fishing, which is different. I really like the stream fishing. But what a lure is, is it's deceptive, is it not? It's used for the purpose to deceive a fish out of its retreat, to actually lure the fish away, to draw the fish, if you will, away from its safe retreat. When I was a young guy growing up in California, we used to go to this place called Twin Lakes. And we would there go, uh, you know, fishing for trout, okay? And there was a certain spot that I would go to, and I would sometimes throw it in the stream, let it go downstream, then click it and pull it back up. And where? The, the trout are hiding behind the rocks. And so the lure comes through. And on the lure, you know how they put those little feathers, and behind those feathers is a big fat trouble, what? Big fat treble hook. But then usually on top of the one I use, this thing called a rooster tail, it had a spinner on it. So that as I begin to pull the rooster tail through the water, I could begin to see the spinner from the refraction of the sun. And sometimes what I would do is I'd move from the stream that was going down and I'd walk down and I'd get into this pool of water. And it kind of came off the stream and it was really calm. And I'd go out there and I'd take my pole and I'd take my rooster tail, that little lure, 
lure that was on there, and I just drop it in. It wasn't a far cast. I just toss it in, and it was the water was calm. And I'd click my reel, and I'd begin to pull my line back through. And as the rooster tail would come through the water, obviously it was designed to look like a insect, a bug. And then once that little uh, spinner got going, it would catch the refraction from the sun. And I kid you not, I could literally watch as I pulled that rooster tail through the water. I would see the trout, what, come out. Now, they never would come out in bites. They're not like bass, are they? They would always come out to the point of the rooster tail. But I could literally watch them, and I'd be going like this, come on, little guy. I mean, it's a big child. Come on, little guy. Take it, take it, take it. Sometimes they wouldn't take it. I'd throw it back in. The rooster tail would go to the bottom. I'd begin to bring it back. I'd begin to see the spinner. And then that same trout that had went back into its retreat would then come out again. And often I would get that trout I was looking for. This is the image that James uses here. What lust does, I'm just telling you how it works. It begins with a sinful, lustful desire. And if you're not careful, it will turn into a shameful deception. What lust will begin to do is it begins to draw you away. It begins to cause you to disobey God. It's drawing you out from your protected place of shelter. It's drawing you out from a place of security. And again here, it's not the devil, it's your own lust. But that's not all that happens. Look what James says in verse 4, 14. He says, not only are you carried away in this deception, he uses this participle, verse 14. You're enticed by your own lust. And the word enticed there means to be captured So it's funny, he doesn't just leave us with the one metaphor of being carried away. You're captured, or the thought is even hooked, is really what the word means. It means to be deceived, deliazzo. It's the idea of being baited, or literally to be deceived. And it's the picture of trapping with bait, or the bait before the fish. In fact, have you heard of the expression We would use it out of this Greek word, hooked on drugs. Some of you might have been thinking hooked on phonics. Don't think about that one, okay? Some some people are hooked on phonics. But that word enticed literally means to be hooked. Another name for a prostitute is a what? Is a hooker. So here's what happens. I'm just helping you, okay? It begins in the imagination. It begins in the desire. If you don't shut that puppy down, what it's going to do is like me fishing at Twin Lakes, lust is going to begin to draw you out. It's going to begin to call you out. It's going to begin to want you to then disobey God. And once it gets you out from your safe retreat where you're carried away, then the next step is, is it entices you. So I always thought I can see this image of the trout coming up to my line. The trout would never dart out and bite. The the trout would be drawn away. Then he'd come to the rooster tail. And then when he would see it, then he would grab it. And then I'd yank it and I had my fish, which is so different than deep sea fishing, right? So here, the fish is carried away to see the bait, the worm, the fly. And it will be enticed, if you will, to bite at impulse, And though the fish are lured out of the retreat, they take the bait and the bait hides the hook. You know, I guess I would just say, do you see how deceiving lust is? 
it's going to paint it all up. It's going to put some feathers on it. It's going to put a little spinner on it. It's going to make it look all pretty. But I'm telling you, student, behind that makeup, okay, is a big, fat treble hook, and it's going to suck you up if you're not careful. So you say, well, Scott, do you, do you know? I know this happens to guys all the time. You say, this ha- oh, it happens to guys all the time. This is a description of pornography, isn't it? I mean, I, I think of the woman who came into my office as a pastor, and she just looked. I said, what happened? She said, well, Scott, I know I travel, and I know my husband travels. So she thought he was not watching things that were edifying. And so she goes into the video store where I pastored. This is some time ago. And she goes to the counter, and she wants to know what her husband's been getting on videos, okay? Because they have videos, then they have private videos. You get it. So she said, sure, behind the counter. What's your name? And she shares her name with the guy working behind the counter. And as she spins off her name and her last name, the guy drops his face, drops his eyes, never looked at her again in the conversation. Why? Because she, the, the man behind there knows who her husband is and knows what her husband has ordered from the video shop so that he would go into this store, get filth, take it out, take it into his house, and watch it when she was away on a business trip. You say, well, Scott, how does that happen to a guy? Whoa, 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 time out. How does that happen? It happens this way every time. If you don't, if you got a desire in your mind and you don't shut that puppy down, that lust is going to carry you out. It's going to carry you away. And then it's not only going to take you out of your safe retreat, it's going to bring you right up to the bait. You're going to be enticed. You're going to bite at the impulse. This is what happens. But listen, don't be deceived. Listen, it's not Satan's fault. It's not the world system's fault. You would be helped to advance if you realize that stuff lives inside you. That stuff lives inside me. We still have, even as believers, unredeemed flesh, and it's still in us. I had a guy one time, try to be careful here. He confessed to me when I pastored in Chicago. I knew right where it was. He had a cabin up in Wisconsin, if that's north, if I'm right. And I'd see this place. Every time you're driving on that freeway north to go somewhere to Wisconsin, they had all these water parks. This guy had a cabin up there. And every time I'd drive, I'd see these big signs off the freeway. Adult, you get the picture. That's probably all I need to say. Adult, pull over here. This off-ramp, triple X, whatever it was. And so he confessed to me that as he'd be on his way up to his, his retreat, he would pull off. And he'd get out of his car. And I just had to ask him. I said, dude, you mean you'd get out of your car and go in? Yeah. I said, those things got cameras. You know, I want to help the guy from his heart. But I said, they got cameras everywhere there, right? Security stuff. I said, do you ever just feel funny? 
Like we live in Chicago and that's not very far that you'd get out and somebody would see you. This is a Christian man at my church, beautiful girls. He said, well, Scott, I go into this place. This is what he said to me. He said, I wear a hat and I wear dark sunglasses. <laughs> I laughed, I think, when he told me. I said, you're kidding me. You mean you think because you put a hat on and because you put sunglasses on that nobody could identify you but that God Almighty doesn't know what you're doing? Are you kidding me? You say, well, Scott, how does that happen to a guy? Listen, real easy. You say, how? He has his hands on the steering wheel and he pulls off the hump ramp. He does it. You say, well, that guy's a little weird. No, you might say he's weird. He's going into that place. It's a sinful desire, okay? And he, it's his imagination. And rather than shutting it down, he's carried away. And I guess I'm thinking of this passage. I could see this guy pulling over. He pulls off the off-ramp. He drives into the parking lot. He gets out of his car. He puts a hat on and he puts sunglasses in. Listen, this is the description of lust. I mean, does this not make you think, you don't have to turn it there. Proverbs 7, just listen to me read it about the prostitute. With her many persuasions, she entices him. And with her flattering lips, she seduces him. And suddenly, you know what it says? He what? He follows her. Interesting. And as an ox goes to the what? Slaughter. As one in the fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces his liver as the bird hastens to the snare so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Wow. Listen, let me just stop here for a second because I have no idea. Nobody told me to speak on this. I don't even really like to speak on this. But if you're a young man and you're dabbling in pornography, you need to break the cycle today. You can talk all you want about advance, but I'll tell you this, you won't even get up to the first 10 feet of the mountain because you're gonna, you're gonna shipwreck yourself if you don't shut this stuff down. Now you say, well, who's to blame for this stuff? It's our own lust, it's not God. Listen, it's not society. Listen, it's not the school system. It's not the circumstances in your home. It's not your spouse. It's not your childhood. It's not the pressures of your job. It's not the devil. Jesus said, for from where? Within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, the fornications, the thefts, the murders, the adulteries, the deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Somebody, listen, has appropriately said that the problem, have you heard it this way? It's not the tempter on the outside. It's the traitor on the inside. I want to help you. You say, well, I don't know how I got caught up in this. Stop. This is how it works. This is how it works. Carried away. Pulling you away. 
pulls you out of your safe place, then, you're, then, then the bait is before you. Listen, if a sinful desire or thought is, not allow, is, is allowed to germinate into evil, it will result in the act of sin and the temp- time to deal with temptation to sin is at its beginning. And I wish, you know what? I wish James was done, but he's not done because you're not done once you sin. So what happens? Look again at the text, verse 15. Did you ever catch this? Then, verse 15, at least in the NASB, then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Now what James does here is he switches the metaphor from fishing and from hunting, that was the bait one, to the metaphor, you can see it, of conception and birth and labor. So I'll put it this way. Sin starts with a lustful, sinful desire. Something you saw. Something you desired to possess. It's like when Achan came in when the walls came down and he went into the house and he saw the, what is that? He saw. It's the lust of the what? Of the eyes. It doesn't have to be pornography. You could covet something. You, you, could, you say, well, where, is, where does a covetous heart come from the inside? But it begins with the desire, something you see, something you want to possess, uh, something you desire. It turns into a shameful deception. It carries you away. It entices you. You're deceived then into believing that your lust will satisfy the deep longing in your heart. But lust here in verse 15 finally conceives So if you're taking notes, here's how it works in the sequence, okay? Thirdly, lust, sickening, disobedience. Okay, it's a desire, right? And then it turns into deception. Then it turns into disobedience. And a desire that is unchecked, here's what James says, conceives. You you understand the word 15. It conceives. It literally, it becomes pregnant. And it gives birth to something, You say, well, what does it give birth to? Look down in the text again. It gives birth to what? Sin. I mean, that's why I might tell you desire itself is not sin. But listen, students, sin occurs when sinful desire leads to deception. You take the bait, then you disobey God. And at that point, when lust conceives, the will, the the internal will is engaged. And when you engage your will, disobedience occurs. So sin then is conceived, and sin is the offspring of a desire that is shamefully deceived into a disobedience. And so listen, when temptation is yielded to, it does not become sin, right? Or when it's yielded to, it becomes sin. When you don't yield to it, it's, it's not necessarily sin. But listen, you've got to be careful. I think of the man who called me, was pastoring. He said, Scott, he's in my church. I got to come see you. Okay, and this is a friend, high school friend, long, long time, played baseball with him. I, I, I said, okay, let me look at my computer. I started to, he goes, I need to come see you today. I'm like, okay, okay, hold on. Hold on. I try, you know, it's got, I'll be there in 10 minutes. And he slammed, you know, the phone down and I didn't even say goodbye. I just heard it click. I thought, and this guy's a funny guy, one of the funniest guys I know. I thought, is he serious? Is he joking? So sure enough, from his home to our church, 10 minutes, 10 minutes, 
He doesn't stop and say, you know, to the secretary. He doesn't stop at the desk. He just comes all the way in the back, doesn't knock on my door, just burst into my door, and he's weeping. I'm like, is this, is this, is he serious or is he, I I mean, he's a really funny guy, but he was serious. Absolute just weeping. And he has his hand like this. And I had this table that I used to sit with people on and then a study table over here. And this table I sit with people has like a little glass, you know, a little glass top. And he takes his hand and he smashes it down on the table. I thought he cracked the glass, but he didn't. And there on the table is his wife's wedding ring. And then I knew he was serious. I said, what what happened? Oh, Scott, and he's just weeping. He could barely talk to me. His wife took off the wedding ring that morning and said, I don't want to be married to you anymore. And she gave it to him or threw it at him. So he didn't know what to do. He called me and, um, and I just, I said, what's going on? He said his wife was on his computer typing and somehow he forgot to box out. I'm not even very good on the computer still. He forgot to box out. So she went to write an email. All I can say is she just said this filth just started to fill the screen. You get the idea. He's traveling on the road, looking at stuff he should not be looking at on the computer. And as he's on the computer looking at filth, his wife sees that, is confronted with that. She said, Scott, I almost wanted to throw up. Throw up. She takes her wedding ring off. She says, you go be married to those women. I don't want to be married to you anymore. Wow. You say, what happens to a guy like that? It's very sad. He's a dear friend of mine, and they stayed married. They, they worked through it. So what happens to it? Listen, you don't have to be a scientist. You don't have to be an engineer. You don't have to have your PhD. You don't have to go get certification in biblical counseling, okay? All you have to do is know the text. Desire that goes unchecked leads to deception. And when you get deceived, it will lead to what? Disobedience. And when you engage your will, you conceive of sin and you give birth to this thing called sin. And, and you know what? I, and I'm warning you. I, I just feel a sense of urgency and I have no, no idea of where any of you are at. But I wish James was done. But I gotta tell you, he's not done. Because you just gave birth to something. You say, well, I just sinned. I just, I need to, I need to confess it. Yeah, I guess you do. But you, but you, but that's not what James says, totally. He said, you, you just conceived. And you just became pregnant and you gave birth to something. And what you gave birth to is sin. And it doesn't just stop there. I'm telling you, students, something else happens. Okay? It leads fourthly. And finally, to death. Look at verse 15. When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth what? 
death, you can see it. Listen, you said, what, what, what's he talking about here? You give birth to sin, you just gave birth to something. And you gave birth to sin, and sin in the scripture grows up. Sin has a life of its own. Sin will continue to develop until it is full grown and mature if you don't shut it down. And the final outcome is death, okay? And what's interesting here is that he uses the metaphor of conception, but unlike a mother and a child who bring forth life, Lust is that deceptive that when you follow the track, when you disobey, it doesn't bring forth life. It brings forth what? Death. Now, you, you say, well, what do you mean it brings forth death? Okay. Well, Paul said that the wages of sin is what? Death. You remember that in the garden, the warning from God from the tree of the knowledge was the day you eat of it, you shall surely what? die. And the question that we'd ask here is what kind of death is this? Is this spiritual death where there's a separation from man and God? Is that the death that James is talking about? Is James secondly talking about physical death that the day you eat it, you'll die and you'll just not only spiritually die, but you'll also physically die. Or thirdly, could James be talking about eternal death? And in other words, as you engage in this practice, I suppose it could lead to eternal death, and in some cases it does. I think what James is giving here is a sweeping statement on the destructiveness of sin is that it brings separation and death. So listen, I just want to tell you, you don't shut this puppy down. It's going to take you farther than you want to go, faster than you want to go, down a path you don't want to go to the day you'll end up and you'll have no idea what will happen, but it's right here. So listen, young men especially, you better get serious about this stuff now. I ask my sons periodically, Rick, do you? I don't know, it's not like I ask them weekly, but I ask them, I have five girls and two boys. But I always, in fact, the guy who married my daughter, I said, hey, I just got to know, do you have a problem with pornography? I mean, I'm just, I mean, this stuff's eating families alive, seriously. And, and people are getting down this track. So you know, the, you know the woman that I told you about that went into the video store and she gave her name and the guy dropped his face? The next time she came in, makes sense to me, the next time she came in to meet with the three of us, me, her husband, and her, she threw some pictures down on the table. Her husband had not seen him until he came into the meeting, that meeting. Well, what are these? It was her husband walking with a woman the very short dress that he says is a business partner. I said, how'd you get these pictures? She hired a private investigator against her husband. That's about the lowest you can go in trust, right? So the private investigator's taking pictures of him, her husband, coming out of a restaurant with a girl. You say, well, Scott, why do you tell the story? Here's why I tell the story. I don't think you just shut it down with videos. You, you, you go down that path, a screen isn't gonna affect you. You gotta now experience that with someone. So what I'm telling you, you don't just have a momentary thought, okay? 
If you're not careful, sin will eat you alive and sin will bury you. And look what it says again in verse 15. It says, and I'm picking on this phrase. I didn't show it to you. It gives birth to sin. Do you see this little phrase in the New American Standard? And when sin is, here's the word, accomplished. You say, what does accomplished mean? It's the word for mature. In other words, sin will grow up and it will mature. Listen, I just want to tell you, I just, I love you. I love your church. But listen, I want to tell you, I'm preaching to my own heart. You better be very serious with this. And maybe I'm addressing more some of the stuff that we find. But I think Brian and Rick and I and pastors, I don't, Rick, honestly, when you were the college pastor, was this a weekly? I I mean, people just confessing this stuff weekly at the university. Then I had the guy come to me at the master's college. And, you know, they have all that stuff on a server and they can just hit a button and it prints out what everybody's seeing in the dorm. Everybody's got on their, it's a server, right? And they said to me, Scott, if you think it's the men, you're wrong. Hit another button, it prints out what the women are seeing and the women was worse than the men. So I'm just, I, I'm just saying, listen, I don't want you to, to be duped by this. You know, there's a radio guy, he's old. Maybe you've heard this story, but I think to me, it's the picture of what we're talking about. It's Paul Harvey. Maybe, maybe you've heard this, but I'll share it with you because I think it's apropos to the discussion. He talks about how an Eskimo kills a wolf. And I'm not trying to be gross, but if I'm anywhere, I think you could handle it in Montana. If I tell the story somewhere else, they're just like, ah, I'm faster. Once you told that story, I couldn't listen. So I don't, I don't want this to happen. Here's how an Eskimo kills a wolf, Okay. The account is grisly, but it offers insight into the destructive nature of temptation. First, what the Eskimo does is he coats the knife blade, okay? And he coats the knife blade with animal blood, and he allows it to freeze. And understand, we're not talking about a little knife. I kind of call it a machete, okay? It's It's like a big knife. And he takes this knife, and he coats it with animal blood, allows it to freeze. Then he adds another layer of blood, and then he adds another layer of blood. Then he adds another layer of blood, and another layer of blood, until the blade is completely concealed. You can picture that by the frozen blood. Next, the hunter takes that big knife, fixes the knife into the ground. Can you picture it with the blade up? So he just basically rams the butt of that knife right into the Arctic, you know, snow and ice with the blade up. And when the wolf follows with his sensitive nose to the source of the scent and discovers the bait, Eskimo goes to sleep. He just leaves it over there night. But when he, the wolf smells it, he licks it and he tastes on that blade the fresh frozen blood, and he begins to lick faster and faster and more and more vigorously. Now harder and harder, the wolf licks the blade into the Arctic night. So great becomes his craving for blood that the wolf does not notice the razor-sharp sting of the naked blood on his own tongue, nor does he recognize the instant in which his own insatiable thirst is being satisfied by his own warm blood and his carnivorous appetite just craves more and more until the dawn finds him dead in the snow. And as I think about that, that's what lust will do. You've got to shut it down, men. You've got to shut it down, women. 
And, and I would say, if you got a problem with this now, you have no business dating right now. You, you need to get a handle on this. You need to have accountability on this. But listen, can I help you? Begins with a desire. It leads to deception. It engages in disobedience. It conceives and it brings forth death, maybe just killing, maybe in this case, your own spiritual life. But make no mistake about it. God's not the one to blame. We're the one to blame. It's not the devil. It's not the society. It's not the circumstances. It's our own lust. And listen, we've got to find a way. I think even in pastoral ministry, I've seen so many guys ruined by this ruined by this. Listen, make some commitments now, young people, and, and, and make, have a heart that would even be able to be accountable to someone. You say, well, Scott, what, what hope is there? Well, can you say it with me? You can say it by heart, maybe. No temptation, right, right here. No temptation has ever overtaken you, but such as is common, what? To man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with every temptation, He will provide you a way of what? Escape. Listen, when you sin or when I sin, you chose to sin. You say, But Scott, I was in the wrong place. I was with the wrong girl. I was with the wrong guy. He's given you a way of escape in every temptation. You could never blame your sin on God. So listen, we'll pick it up this afternoon. But understand that, and it will help you and my own life advance for the cause of Christ. Would you bow your head? Maybe just as your head is bowed, I have no idea where you are. Maybe there's some of you in here who have gained victory over this and you would say, Pastor, I understand that. That was me. Then if you're an older man and you've gained victory, you need to help younger men. You no longer have to go somewhere physically. Look, you can have it in your own private room on your computer. Listen, if that's you, I just give you a moment to confess your sin and deal with your sin. Come clean with your sin. Do you understand David a little bit more when he said, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done what is wicked in your sight? All sin is a form of atheism. So ask God to cleanse you. If you're pure of these things, praise God. Ask him to give you ongoing purity. Look to Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus Christ that in every temptation in which the devil came at him, he responded with, it is written. I mean, the truth is, students, young people, is the word dominating your life more than your sinful imagination? If the word's dominating you, you're gonna have the pathway to victory. Father, we, we just look to you. Father, we need you. Apart from you, we can do nothing. And Father, we can't even live this thing called the Christian life in our own strength. We're completely, totally dependent upon you. And I'm thinking of that song we sang last night, All I Have is Christ. And Lord, at the same time, we've got to fight sin. Paul said, I buffet 
my body. I make it my slave. Lest possibly after preaching the gospel, I myself should be disqualified. I'm thinking of Paul to young Timothy when he said, flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness with those who call on God from a pure heart. I'm thinking of Job when he said, I made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Father, I'm thinking of Joseph who fled from that sinful woman because he said, how could I commit this sin against God? Father, those are our examples. Jesus Christ being the foremost, that in the hour of his temptation, he said, not my will be done, but thine. And so he becomes our example, our victory. And Father, where we've fallen short, we do look to him because our only hope is in him and all I have is Christ. But Lord, would you, while we're in this carcass of sin, help us fight sin with all of our might. We ask your blessing now and all God's children said, amen.